In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Brussels. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's correspondent in London. And I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's deputy foreign editor in Kildare. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest developments in Brussels, London and Dublin. This week, David Frost launches his latest scheme to dismantle EU laws, including rules on GMOs, while Boris Johnson hailed the return of imperial weights and measures now that Britain was out of the clutches of the Napoleonic metric system. We'll look in detail at what's involved and whether these will be symbolic gestures or if they'll create a genuine divergence in standards between Britain and Europe. We'll also assess the impact of Boris Johnson's cabinet reshuffle and what it'll mean for Brexit and the Northern Ireland Protocol. And we'll take an in-depth look at the supply of medicines to Northern Ireland and how that will shape up to be a defining aspect of how the protocol is implemented. But first, Sean, to you, there's been a lot of denial that Brexit was about imperial nostalgia Imperial nostalgia has been, as I speak to you from this eight foot by eight foot room that I'm sitting in at the moment, Sean, in County Kildare, just so you understand the uh, the dimensions. There has been an element of imperial nostalgia this week and Brexit has facilitated it. Well, I can tell you from this 16 square metre room in London that uh, imperial nostalgia certainly plays well for the Daily Telegraph, the Daily Express, possibly even the Daily Mail. Uh, but a lot of other people over here are scratching their heads and saying, what on earth is all this about? Do the Tory party understand that there are plenty of people under the age of 50 in this country for whom these things are basically meaningless? And that whilst the average age of the Conservative Party membership may be 73, uh, the rest of the country is of a rather different demographic and uh, will be rather baffled by any such move. Uh, but of course, the reality when you start to dig down a little bit uh, is considerably uh, less than uh, meets the eye. Uh, from the press release sort of material here, what they're talking about is uh, changing the law to allow uh, small shops, basically small traders, to uh, sell product using imperial measurements only. Uh, imperial measures are, contrary to popular belief in this country, actually still legal here in the UK. And in fact, they're legal under a European Union agreement that dates from 2008, uh, under the time of uh, the Commissioner Gunter Verhoegen, whom Tony will uh, no doubt remember well. Uh, but he did a deal that allowed Britain and uh, indeed Ireland to continue using uh, imperial measures like points. Uh, as and where they, they wanted to do so. In terms of, of, of weights and measures in particular, it was to allow uh, a parallel system. If you were displaying stuff in pounds and ounces, you'd also use kilos and grams and vice versa. And then for the all-important one, the one that seems to have triggered all this stuff off the, the pint of beer, um, they said, fine, pints are, are perfectly legal. It seems a, a pint is a, a legal measure for selling beer across the European Union. Um, even down in Brussels, you'll see uh, signs referring to pints. So it's, it's a widely used term, and it's not really a big issue uh, at all. Right. How's it gone down in the UK anyway, Sean? Much celebration, taking back control. Taking back control of what? Remember, this is just a review to see whether there's any uh, interest in it. There was a Downing Street were asked about it this morning and said, no, actually, we don't have a timescale on this. There's no deadline. Um, it, we're only starting a review to see uh, how practical this thing is. So whether it uh, survives, whether it comes to pass, uh, or whether it's just another bit of PR fluff, a bit of chaff that's thrown out there uh, from Downing Street to see how it plays or just satisfy some of the old codgers who mightn't actually be around in time for the legislative wheels to turn slowly, slowly and make all this stuff legal. The other thing to bear in mind, of course, is that for the vast majority of things sold in Britain, they're already in packaging that is produced into metric specifications 
and the supply chain here is at enough of a, a critical uh, squeeze it's under enough pressure without having to change packaging right now simply to accommodate a whim from the conservative party i think we're still going to get our kilos and 150 gram packages in the supermarkets forever i don't see them changing that now and the other point about it is if they were to change everything into imperial measurements they'd simply be cutting off whatever export markets they have because everybody else wants it in a metric system apart from the americans of course right there has been i suppose a greater purge announced by david frost as well of getting rid of EU rules where they're not necessary anymore, where British rules are needed to replace them. Yeah, and that's a a more interesting uh, prospect with a a more of a political edge to it, as you would expect from Lord Frost. So uh, when he announced this in the House of Lords uh, on Thursday, uh, it came wrapped with the the usual uh, level of uh, belligerence that you've come to expect from Lord Frost, uh, uh, really uh, pushing out Uh, the idea. Again, when you start to look down at what's being uh, proposed, some of it uh, is uh, interesting, uh, serious uh, issues. Other ones have have little or nothing to do with the uh, European Union, as far as I can see, things like digital driving licences. Well, perhaps you need a a, a hard copy of one uh, for the EU, but there's been enough uh, EU law reform uh, trying to standardise driving licences across Europe. So I don't know whether that will... From an Irish perspective, one of the ones that's interesting is on um, medicines and medical devices, uh, because uh, one of the areas they're particularly looking at are uh, things like COVID testing kits, but also cardiac stents. Now, of course, Ireland is a huge producer uh, of cardiac stents, uh, and any divergence in the regulation of those markets uh, will be of some concern, I guess, to the medical devices uh, industry uh, in Ireland. But uh, the British seem to think that they will get a competitive advantage in the way they regulate uh, the production of medical devices uh, and also medicines as well. Um, In other areas, they're talking about uh, aviation consumer policy reform and saying the government will, quote, reposition the UK's approach to air passenger consumer rights in the post-EU world, um, which they say means improving consumer confidence developing trust in booking travel um have to see what michael o'leary has to say about that kind of thing mm. um repealing the eu ports services regulation which again lord frost was saying a good example of a regulation that was geared heavily towards eu interests and never worked for the uk uh, without spelling out how it never worked for the uk or mentioned that the eu was the uk was part of the eu when this was of course drawn up the other thing here is the small print it says, when legislative time allows. Uh, so they've been pushing ahead on, on that one. Perhaps in terms of this podcast, one of the things we've been talking about uh, is the amount of documentation that is required to uh, trade uh, across borders and the amount of uh, documentation that uh, people in Britain in particular are required to uh, produce nowadays. Uh, the government is saying, uh, that they intend to legislate to produ- to place electronic versions of business-to-business trade documents on the same legal footing as physical documents. And I guess in, in uh, some extent they're putting it up to the EU there because we've heard lots of stories in Britain about how they have to produce v- literally volumes of documents to have the proverbial wet stamp applied to them by French customs guys because that's the way it's done in France. It's paperwork and a wet stamp. Um, but they're saying uh, they can uh, introduce uh, an electronic version of this, speed things up, make it greener. Of course, everything has to be greener these days. And they uh, proudly state that by doing that in Britain, it'll bring bring global trade law into the 21st century. Uh, but that'll be an interesting one to, uh, to watch, uh, is this alternative arrangements uh, by other means. They also talk about digitization of export health certificates Uh, for imports and trade, uh, saying the Department of Agriculture will work to digitise certificates for imports and exports in order to bring benefits to businesses. Uh, That's the type of thing that they're talking about. Uh, Also, environmental licensing and permitting. Uh, They say they're going to um, rationalise existing environmental licensing and permitting regimes so they're more streamlined uh, for business. But, of course, the one that uh, has attracted the uh, attention again of the newspapers is once again allowing the uh, 
stamping of a crown mark on pint glasses. Uh, people here seem to be getting excited about well, this. Was that banned? Um, I'm not sure whether it was banned or not. There was a court case um, back in the uh, early 1980s about what is a pint of beer? How much beer do you get in a pint glass? And the judge had apparently ruled that uh, the head had to be included as part of the measure of uh, a pint of beer. Uh, it wasn't pure liquid. And this uh, caused some disruption and dissent amongst the uh, lovers of real ale who've been on the government's case for a long time. They want an honest measure of beer in an honest glass and a regulated way of doing that. The old crown mark that was introduced by, would you believe, King Billy himself, William of Orange, way back in the 1690s. Uh, that was supposed to be proof that the glass that your beer was served in uh, had been tested and was authorised and actually contained one pint uh, of beer. Um, uh, you know, we all have an interest in, in these things as consumers of making sure that we get what we pay for. Uh, that mark was apparently replaced in 2006. I'm not sure why. Uh, and they started using the CE, European Conformity Mark, just to say that this glass actually does contain a pint. But according to one industry um, website I was looking at earlier, um, most of the pint glasses that are actually used in British pubs are made in France or Belgium. And uh, there was some excuse about how the pint glasses would not be able to circulate freely within the single market if they had a British crown mark on them. Um, I don't know whether that's real or not, but that seems to be the backstory on that one. And now the British government are saying that they will uh, change the regulation of pint glasses to allow certain pub chains or restaurants uh, or retailers of beer to reinstate the crown mark on the glasses they use. But some of the publicans have been out quick saying, listen, uh, it's going to cost me too much money to be doing that kind of thing. I just want to sell the beer. We've had a year and a half with no customers. Can we not just sell them the beer? Thanks very much. All right. Crypto-republicanism amongst the publicans. Tony, Sean mentioned medicines there, and that's something that we're turning our attention to the Northern Ireland Protocol at the moment. You've been having a look at for an extensive blog you're going to write this week, but maybe we can get it to some of the issues if it's possible, because it is quite complex. In summary, in this podcast, medicines have become, I suppose, one of the more emotive issues of the Northern Ireland Protocol. There was the accusation of people in Northern Ireland being denied cancer drugs because of the EU's approach to the implementation of the Northern Ireland Protocol or their desire to see it implemented in full. Maybe take us through what the problem is and maybe what some of the prescribed solutions are. Yeah, I mean, the medicines are going to become a big issue now. The European Union is going to bring out new legislation in a couple of weeks' time specifically designed to alleviate the problem of medicines and the Northern Ireland Protocol. And as you say, it's getting a lot more of a political complexion. I think David Frost and Boris Johnson know that medicines are something of a weak spot for the European Union in terms of the moral high ground on the, the protocol. Uh, anything which appears bad for patients in Northern Ireland is something that you'll want to try and correct. Um, and this is being controlled and handled very centrally by Downing Street. I mean, in simple terms, when the protocol was negotiated in 2019, Northern Ireland, it was agreed, would stay part of the EU single market for goods, and that includes medicines. So Northern Ireland would be following the EU rulebook for the supply and circulation and regulation of, of medicines and, and drugs. Um, but the problem is the NHS in Northern Ireland gets pretty much almost 100% of its medicines, especially generic medicines from GB, which will be operating under a different regulatory system. Um, now, th this didn't really seem to attract people's attention before the protocol was signed. A lot of the, the attention, as, as we all remember, was about agri-food and, uh, and so on, and, and the hard border in Ireland and all, all those problems. But it was only after the protocol was signed that the pharmaceutical industry started to look in detail at what the Northern Ireland Protocol would mean for the NHS and for pharmaceutical companies. And they began to get very worried um, because 
instead of Northern Ireland being part of a big UK market, which has its own efficiencies, its own just-in-time supply chains, uh, its own pricing system, especially for generic drugs, suddenly Northern Ireland was going to be essentially a, a tiny market on its own. And pharmaceutical companies, when they run production lines, don't tend to like having to deal with tiny little markets uh, in terms of providing tailor-made products for those markets. It just doesn't make economic sense. There's a worry about a lot of duplication. Um, would you have to have warehousing in Northern Ireland that you don't, you don't have now? A lot of EU regulations deal with quality control. There's a thing called batch testing. So that means making sure uh, consignments of medicines are safe, that they're going to do what they say they do. Um, Obviously, in the UK, big pharmaceutical companies do that on their own premises or they hire labs to do that and they have staff to do that. But you don't have such a system uh, in Northern Ireland that would do that. And if you're going to do that batch testing and quality control for stuff that's going to Northern Ireland, could you do it elsewhere in the European Union or would that completely disrupt uh, existing supply chains? So back in December last year, the EU and UK agreed that this was going to be really troublesome for the industry and they agreed a one-year grace period. Um, now, again, we've talked about other grace periods and the, and the European idea that, well, this grace period is for companies and the NHS in Northern Ireland to adapt to the new regime. Um, but in fact, uh, they realised that a lot of pharmaceutical companies were saying, look, we just can't generate supplies for Northern Ireland if it's outside the UK regulatory system on its own, uh, a very small market. Um, so, you know, we're in real trouble here. Now, at that point, around May, the European Commission started to realise that this was going to be a grave political problem for them. Why? Is this because and of the, they started the, the, the issue of the UK arguing for equivalence? It would seem that maybe equivalence would be the only way around this, where the UK's medicines regulatory regime would be accepted by the EU to an order not to disrupt the sale. Is that where the political issue is? Well, there was a political issue, yes, in that the, the UK was looking for mutual rec recognition so that the EU would effectively recognise the EU's, the UK's new regulatory uh, system. So therefore, any UK medicines could be sold in the EU and vice versa. The UK would recognise the EU's system. That got dragged into the trade and cooperation agreement uh, and uh, there were trade-offs and horse trading and... Uh, when the dust settled, there wasn't a mutual uh, recognition agreement on medicines between both sides. But I think the, the more acute political problem for the EU was this idea that Northern Ireland could soon find itself struggling to get medicines to run its NHS, run hospitals, run community pharmacies. If pharmaceutical companies were just saying there's too much duplication, it's too expensive, uh, the, the the logistics are horrendous. So in in the spring, the European Commission started to talk to member states about, well, nothing in the protocol um, undermines the reality that the UK is responsible for health po policy and public health policy in Northern Ireland uh, and the supply of medicines is part of that. So we're going to have to have a bit of a rethink. So then the Commission started promising that it would change its own legislation to allow some of the regulatory functions governing medicines uh, to happen in GB um, so that you wouldn't have to create this big new infrastructure from scratch in Northern Ireland or to completely re-engineer supply chains uh, for Northern Ireland. A lot of these um, functions could be carried out by GB even though it was outside the, the regulatory sphere of the European Union. Um, so that was a promise by by the European Commission in at the end of June. And as I mentioned, they're going to bring out this legislation soon. But in the meantime, um, a lot of pharmaceutical companies are looking at the situation and saying, well, by law, we have to give six months notice if we're going to withdraw certain medicines from the Northern Ireland market. And because we don't know what the reality will be like at the end of this year when the grace period runs out. Then in July, pharmaceutical companies started to pre-notify that they were going to withdraw uh, certain medicines from Northern Ireland. And so far, two and a half thousand 
medicines have had this this pre-notification because of the six-month lead-in time and 910 medicines have uh, been removed already uh, or or the the health authorities have been told that these um, medicines will definitely be removed Uh, and and this is causing real concern for the Northern Ireland's uh, chief pharmaceutical officer who has to ensure that the NHS in Northern Ireland is, is properly supplied with medicines. Um, and the question now is, will the new EU legislation, which will bring in all sorts of flexibilities and grant uh, the GB the kind of access or, or the kind of regulatory function so that those medicines can continue? The question is whether those pharmaceutical companies will change course and say, okay, we are reassured that this new legislation from the Commission will uh, fulfil all of our concerns and we'll reverse course and we will now say that we will provide these these medicines. But I think in general terms, just to kind of finish the point, it, it is, you know, potentially a very pernicious kind of situation for the Northern Ireland Health Authorities to be in, in that they are kind of caught between to regulators, uh, you know, they, they public health is run by the UK, of course. They have to get guidance from the UK uh, regulator, the MHRA. There's the Joint Committee on Vaccines and Immunisation. They get all their advice from there. And yet, at the same time, Northern Ireland will be technically um, under the remit of the European Medicines Agency. Now, these agencies, both the British and the EU one, will be oftentimes in lockstep or just a, a short step behind each other, depending on, on the product. Um, but it still provides uh, a kind of uncertainty and a, a concern for regulators and for hospitals and, and for the uh, the overall NHS operation in Northern Ireland. All right, OK. Let's metaphorically stick to some issues of medication, Sean. Over in the UK, there were some bitter pills swallowed during the week and the reshuffle of the Cabinet. Yes, a, a Cabinet reshuffle, a fairly extensive one, seen as a pretty ruthless uh, exercise of power by Boris Johnson. Remember, everybody was in that Cabinet was loyal to, to uh, the Prime Minister. Uh, everybody... Uh, who indeed stood as a Conservative candidate in the last election, had to pledge loyalty to Brexit and to the Prime Minister himself. Uh, But still, he wielded the axe uh, in a pretty big way, uh, including demoting uh, the man who had stood in for him as uh, acting Prime Minister while he was in hospital with COVID. And that was Dominic Raab, uh, who was demoted as uh, Foreign Secretary and uh, set off to be the Justice Minister. Not a bad demotion, that has to be said. It's a big and important Department of State. Uh, Nevertheless, Mr. Rabb reluctant to go because he thought he was being blamed for the uh, debacle in Afghanistan. Um, He stays on as Deputy Prime Minister, does he? That's the kind of a sop to him, is it? It does, it does. So uh, he can um, console himself with uh, another neighbouring Deputy Prime Minister, Mr Leo Varadkar, who's extremely popular in British politics and uh, Conservative Party circles. Uh, Maybe they can swap notes on on what it's like being a Deputy Prime Minister. Mr Rabb, of course, uh, has taken the fall not so much for what happened in Afghanistan, uh, more for... Uh, why he wasn't in the office um, looking after uh, the events as they were unfolding but was uh, on holiday uh, at the time and uh, didn't get back to London sharpish enough. Um, It was a public relations uh, fiasco and he's gone. Uh, Some people were noticing that uh, the people who got demoted out of the cabinet and out of the ranks of junior ministers tended to be the ones who were not figuring very highly uh, in the poll ratings of uh, on Conservative Home um, that is, poll ratings amongst Conservative Party activists. Right, so death uh, by grassroots. People, death by grassroots, indeed. But So people like Liz Truss, who was the number one uh, pick uh, of, amongst the, uh, the grassroots, um, she was the one who got that big and important and high-profile job of Foreign Secretary. Um, I think we've probably mentioned her a few times on passant over the past two years because of the... Uh, rollover of British trade deals. She was the trade secretary uh, and so um, she's, her supporters are saying she's taken that experience of dealing with lots of uh, foreign leaders and the trade diplomacy, if you like, and carrying that forward uh, into the uh, bigger job uh, of being the, the Home Secretary. From our point of view on this podcast, uh, we should mention that the 
Brexit-facing team uh, in Cabinet hasn't changed all that much. It's still uh, Lord Frost. Uh, it's still Brandon Lewis dealing with Northern Ireland affairs. Uh, but we have had a change in the Cabinet office where Michael Gove, who had initially been dealing with the Brexit issues, uh, then was uh, to a large degree superseded uh, by David Frost. Uh, he has been replaced uh, in that Cabinet office um, Chancellor Duchy of uh, Lancaster office uh, by Steve Barclay, whom fans of the podcast will remember as a, as a name from the the past uh, as the last um, Secretary of State for Brexit for actually getting um, the withdrawal agreement done and across the line after Dominic Raab had uh, failed at that task and uh, left Cabinet. Um, Mr Barclay uh, a tough negotiator, uh, but I don't recall him being, you know, going out of his way to be ideological about things. He was uh, a pragmatic operator, stood his ground well, got things done um, in a fairly no-nonsense kind of a way. He's back now in the Cabinet Office, very important uh, role, um, and will presumably have some of those uh, flanking measures um, or roles in dealing with Brexit in the way that uh, Michael Gove did uh, in his relationship with Lord Frost, who of course can't appear in the House of Commons because he has to stay in the House of Lords when he's doing his uh, announcements. So somebody has to be his stunt double, if you like, in the House of Commons. Tony, just there was uh, speaking of of the Houses of Parliament, the European Parliament was host this week to the annual State of the European Union address by the President of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, and yet again. No mention of Brexit, despite the bandwidth it takes up within the European Commission. It was significant by its absence, and not for the first time. I think in late 2019, I recall being down in Strasbourg myself and and noting in one of the reports I had to write up that Brexit really wasn't featuring centrally at all. It was about kind of future priorities, the mission statement, and the big projects Europe would be engaging in in order to make itself more relevant in the lives of citizens. Same again this year? Yeah, that's right, Colm. There was no mention at all of Brexit or the Northern Ireland Protocol. I mean, I, I thought she might say something, even just a paragraph on, um, you know, the fact that she has been, you know, really quite prominently involved in in you know, playing that role of of the stern um, participant or interlocutor with the UK uh, on abiding by the agreements that they have signed, uh, especially on the Northern Ireland Protocol. And she has been uh, very closely involved in how the EU Commission is responding to things like the European uh, or the UK's command paper. You know, she's been quite centrally involved in the whole medicines issue. Uh, but there was no reference at all in her speech. It was all about, uh, first of all, I think she, there was a bit of a lap of honour on the vaccinations issue. You'll remember she had a really torrid time earlier this year because of the slow rollout of the the EU's vaccination programme. Uh, and uh, now it seems that, that once it did get going, it was very successful. And of course, the European Commission had... Uh, presided over the creation of the digital COVID certificates, which really did help to open up travel around Europe. Uh, You could really feel that this summer, um, even if a lot of Irish people were still not able to get away because of our own uh, problems with it. Um, Then she was talking about, obviously, the big challenges, the Green Deal, climate change. I think a lot of the challenges that she highlighted are external ones. She talked about China um, she talked about the, the problem in um, the short supply of microchips, semiconductors, how that is really starting to pose major problems for European industry. Um, and, you know, we were almost expecting her to say we need to create a semiconductor union um, along with other, all the other health unions and uh, defence unions, which she also referred to. And, of course, on that point, um, she talked about Afghanistan and the fact that the EU had to start to address its global foreign policy footprint. And yes, she said, there is uh, now a conversation that has to be had about a defence union uh, beefing up European defence. Which, which is an interesting also, one from an Irish point of view, because pre-Brexit, the UK would have been one of the main disruptors to progress on that. 
because they wanted to maintain the preeminent place of NATO and that suited Ireland with its kind of neutrality policy and its less than enthusiastic position on engaging in European defence uh, because of where neutrality is obviously in Ireland. That That's something that Ireland was happy enough with but with the departure of the UK and greater enthusiasm amongst the larger states in Europe for that, there is a chance that that could roll on, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, there there is um, a, a kind of revived conversation on defence at EU level. The French, the, the Italians, the Spanish are, are very keen on it. Germany as well, interested in it. Um, but of course, you get the Eastern Europeans who say, absolutely no way, uh, NATO is the preeminent uh, defence security guarantee that we have and we don't want to start duplicating stuff uh, and uh, alienating the Americans by forging ahead with some kind of advanced EU defence uh, option. But, you know, we, we have had talk for years, and Sean will recall this from his days in Brussels, about battle groups um, at EU level. You know, there was talk in the late 90s of uh, a rapid reaction force of EU troops who could go in and take part in a humanitarian mission uh, at short notice. Um, but those have been announced and then they sit on the shelf. The battle groups have never been used because there isn't the political will to, to put European uh, troops in harm's way. Um, and, you know, we, ha- we have a thing called PESCO now, which is kind of enhanced cooperation between clusters of member states. Ireland has signed up to that It's as long as it complies with the, the triple lock uh, that governs Ireland's participation. Um, but whether or not you could now have some kind of um, you know, latter-day um, rapid advance or rapid reaction force, um, those conversations are now picking up again, even though there's quite a bit of opposition. But, you know, it's true that when Afghanistan happened, once again, the EU presence there was fragmented. Everyone was waiting for the Americans. There wasn't uh, an EU transport plane that could have gone in to help European embassies get European citizens and Afghan citizens out. So again, that's why these issues flare up periodically and then there's a discussion and then nothing really happens. So, um, but on on the Irish question, you know, I think it is worth pointing out that the European movements, uh, Ireland's, their their studies and opinion polls on Irish attitudes to Europe, in the past couple of years, there has been an uptick in opinion, especially among younger people, that Ireland uh, should be more willing to be more enthusiastic or sanguine about a European defence capability uh, and that Ireland should take part more in, in the defence of Europe, given the, the, you know, the global and uh, neighbourhood threats. Also, I'd, I'd uh, draw attention to what we had during the week with this announcement of a big submarine deal between uh, the United Kingdom, the United States of America and Australia, uh, basically shafting the French who had agreed a, a deal to supply Australia with submarines in 2016. Uh, this is a huge contract worth uh, about $90 billion dollars uh, it's uh, really uh, a, a gigantic piece of defence infrastructure, and the French are absolutely steamed about this. Um, they've even cancelled uh, a, a Navy celebration that was supposed to be happening in America this week uh, to commemorate the good old days when the French Navy came to the rescue of George Washington's troops uh, against the British. Um, so they are really, really livid, and there's an expectation, or perhaps just a hope, that uh, sensing this, uh, and President Biden did refer to the French as, as great allies of America when he was announcing this uh, public shafting um, the other night, uh, there's uh, some hope that he might go out of his way to try and placate the French, uh, and that might provide an opening for some kind of a pro-US, pro-NATO push to have a greater European uh, defence arrangement uh, and get that particular ball rolling. And also here in Downing Street tonight, Friday, uh, Boris Johnson is hosting the Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte, who has let it be known that he's going to be carrying an offer to the British to see would they actually like to get involved in one of those this European defence cooperation. They were offered that uh, during the Brexit talks, uh, very firmly rejected it, but They're thinking now in the post-Afghanistan situation uh, that perhaps it might be a good idea 
uh, if uh, the British cooperated more closely with the Europeans. Uh, they saw themselves being uh, effectively abandoned by the Americans in Afghanistan, and uh, there's been some talk among British ministers of saying they would have stayed put if they'd had an agreement with the, uh, the Europeans to do more, uh, but eventually they all uh, kind of um, fell apart uh, and melted away. Uh, and in that small context of Afghanistan, we did also see uh, the Irish army sending a, a small rescue mission in, using the French to fly them in and fly them out. So a little bit of cooperation going on already, but perhaps more of it happening as a result of recent events. Right. And we started off the last segment there on the Ursula von der Leyen speech saying that, you know, it, Brexit didn't get the mention. Brexit also didn't get the mention, Sean, when David Frost was talking about things that are causing problems in the UK supply chain. He said a variety of factors, including the pandemic, but I suppose notable by its absence, given the demand by some UK logistics providers to have a loosening up of the free movement situation to allow uh, European truck drivers to come and work in the UK. That's the, the government there has turned its face against it. We touched on it last week, but you've been having a look again at the supply chain issues in the UK. We have because uh, the uh, the government announced on Tuesday that they weren't going to be uh, in or putting off once again the introduction of uh, full SPS and uh, customs checks uh, on the UK border. Their press release uh, announcing it said government sets out pragmatic new timetable for introducing border controls. Um, pragmatic partly because uh, they haven't built a lot of the facilities um, there where these checks are supposed to be carried on. So uh, things like uh, pre-notifying phytosanitary stuff is being pushed out until January. Export health certificates, which we talk about a lot, that's now pushed out until uh, July of next year. Um, other safety and security declarations that's um, going to July uh, of 2022 uh, but customs declarations and controls so the customs bit that's going to go ahead on the 1st of January but a lot of the uh, veterinary and health check stuff that's been pushed out into next year a reason for that also is that there's a shortage of vets uh, in the United Kingdom, the volume of additional work uh, that will be required under all of these SPS regulations uh, is overwhelming uh, the vet industry. They're having enough um, difficulties just processing the food requirements that they have to now, and that is uh, causing uh, delays, all of which adds up to the pressure that's on the British to do some kind of a, a deal uh, with the EU over the uh, f- health check element of it, the SPS uh, controls uh, that would uh, remove uh, much uh, of the checking uh, and requirements. So there's a certain element of, of keeping on moving pieces on the chessboard forward uh, to buy a little bit of space, perhaps, uh, for these uh, negotiations between Lord Frost and Mara Shevchevich to perhaps uh, create a situation where an SPS uh, agreement could come in. Uh, up in the Scottish government today, they've just uh, announced that they're um, not pushing ahead with building a, a customs and SPS facility at Cairn Ryan Port, which deals with a lot of traffic from Northern Ireland, because they're confused about the situation and they don't know who's going to be paying for this, uh, these facilities. So just practical bricks and mortar elements uh, are holding things up there. Uh, in terms of Oh, yeah, we should have mentioned earlier, actually, in uh, in terms of Lord Frost and his announcement on uh, changing regulations. One of the biggies there, which I inexplicably failed to mention, is that the British say they're going to change their approach to uh, legislating for genetically modified organisms, and in particular, gene-edited organisms. Uh, Now, these things are banned from the food uh, chain in uh, the European Union. Right, that's potentially a biggie, uh, isn't it? That is potentially a biggie, and if they were to to seriously go down that route, I don't know what kind of opposition there might be to it here in domestic British politics, Uh, but if they were, then you would get potentially see a situation where either animal food stuff or uh, human uh, food supplies uh, might be uh, marketed in the UK and by extension in Northern Ireland uh, containing genetically modified uh, organisms. Uh, and that would have uh, alarm bells ringing uh, across the European Union uh, about the um, possible uh, leakage of uh, those products across the border. Now, whether that's a serious plan, whether it's just uh, raising a, a flag to um, or a 
showing off a sharp stick that they intend jabbing into the soft flanks of the EU. Uh, who knows? Uh, but it has potential. So, you know, maybe watch that one going down uh, um, the, the tracks in Westminster over the next year or two. Uh, but yeah, you were asking about the uh, supply chain situation here, still getting bad, uh, not just truck drivers, uh, not just vets, but also butchers to do the meat processing. Again, a lot of uh, those kind of uh, jobs uh, were dependent on um, workers coming in from the European Union or got filled by uh, people from the EU coming in, the fruit pickers, another classic one. Uh, so the shortages of staff have been really cutting across uh, British industry right through through the supply chain. We also had unemployment figures out this week. Uh, unemployment, the official measure now down to 4.6%. Great news, um, you would normally say, uh, but they're saying there's a million vacancies in the UK uh, labour market now and there ain't enough people um, left on the dole to fill the kind of jobs. So where are they going to get these people from to uh, bolster the UK economy? Uh, we've had some politicians saying, well, look at Germany, they've got 400,000 uh, shortage of workers there um, and they're still in the EU, so it can't be a Brexit issue. But then again, voices from those quarters were heard down the year saying, look at the Germans letting in a million people into their country in the refugee crisis of 2015. 2016, um, isn't that dreadful sign that the whole place is falling apart? Well, you can let in a million people and you can still have a, a, a labour shortage, it seems, um, in the European Union. But the movement of people is a big issue, hasn't gone away uh, and is still causing problems throughout the chain. In the meantime, uh, we are having the supermarkets getting thinner and thinner in their stocks, getting tighter and tighter. The just-in-time delivery system uh, is really uh, on its... Uh, uh, the, the ragged edge of sustainability, uh, talking to a number of people in the industry. Last week, we took a clip from the Institute for Government. Uh, they had a seminar on um, featuring a guy called Ian Wright, who's the chief executive of the Food and Drink Federation. They claim to be Britain's biggest uh, manufacturing grouping, uh, employing uh, about 13% of the British workforce, they claim. Uh, so they're biggie. Um, I thought Wright's comments at the Institute for Government were pretty interesting, so uh, we went round to their offices uh, earlier this week to have a chat with them and uh, find out a bit more about how he thought uh, the supply chain situation were going. And we began by asking him about that announcement uh, from the British government uh, about uh, suspending or pausing or pushing out further the SPS checks, and he had a rather surprising take on it. It's predictable, but many of our members who make up the manufacturing part of the UK food chain will be very dismayed by this change. They will have invested hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of pounds in the preparation, and now that money has been to some degree wasted because the whole thing has been put back six months. But also it continues to advantage the existing system where there are checks on food going out but not on food coming in advantages EU traders at the expense of UK traders and if that's taking back control it's a bit difficult to understand what the point was. Let's move on to the difficulties in the food supply chain specifically. Lots of supply chains are now exhibiting stress and shortages but in, in your industry in particular Paint us the picture. What's it like out there? Just how bad is it? Well, the first thing to say is that the UK is not going to run out of food. Big red letters, double underlined. We will not run out of food. But what is happening is a very significant disruption to the just-in-time food system we've had up to now. So up to now, it's been the case that you could expect supermarket shelves and restaurants to be full of the kinds of products needed to satisfy shopper and diner wishes. So the shelves would be full, the restaurant kitchens would be full. That system is breaking down because of a number of factors. One is labour. Uh, it is just impossible to get the relevant and necessary numbers of workers in across the whole of the farm to fork supply chain. We hear a lot about truck drivers, uh, and that was the, the pressure point, certainly for the first six months of the year. But now it seems it's everything. It's butchers in meatpacking plants, it's pickers in the uh, fruit and vegetable sectors, even people working in supermarkets. There's a big shortage. Yeah, uh, drivers are the canary in the coal mine, if I can put it that way. 
We reckon that one in eight of the four million people who work from farm to fork have gone missing since the beginning of COVID. Now, there are a number of factors that have caused that, and those different factors mean that the shortages are turning up, as you say, in a number of different places. They are amongst lorry drivers and other drivers. They're in warehouses, they're in abattoirs. They've massively affected hospitality this summer. Anyone who's been on holiday in an English or Scottish resort will have found that uh, hotels are short-staffed. They're often only serving their residential guests. Uh, restaurants, cafes, sandwich shops having to close early or offer a very restricted service. And they will have seen shortages on supermarket shelves. So these uh, labour shortages, uh, and it's a big one, one in eight workers, have a big impact on our food supply system. Now you've said it's not going to get better, it's going to get worse and then get different. What did you mean by that? Well, I don't see any way it will get better unless some of these factors change. So we would need the government to change its immigration policy. It's not going to do that. We would need it to be attractive to those who have... Uh, exited the UK to come back. Well, the only way that's going to happen is if wages go up. We would need those older workers who've decided to become economically inactive in the banks, rather an inelegant phrase, uh, since the lockdown because they liked their lifestyle during the lockdown to go back to work. Well, they've made that choice and I think it's unlikely that in the numbers we would need that they will come back. So the shortage of labour will remain and so will the disruption. In terms of truck drivers, there's been uh, demands from your industry and a few others to have a special visa regime to get truck drivers in in the short term, but no chance of that happening, is there? Well, I think the government will look at that. Um, and, and listen, I'm not one who says that the government is, is uh, wrong or evil or whatever to do this. They were elected on a policy that this immigration, this approach to immigration, uh, w was at the cornerstone of their manifesto. So we can't say they haven't got a mandate, they've got a massive mandate. But this is what the British people, maybe not entirely with uh, complete transparency, voted for. So the government's not going to change that. I think there are some solutions, but a lot of them are long term, like automation. And I mean, eventually we will see a lot more robots in factories and doing the picking. We will see drones and driverless lorries d uh, used for deliveries. But right now, those sorts of solutions, particularly the drones and the driverless lorries, don't have public consent, so they're not going to be deployed. So what's the supply, food supply situation going to be like for Christmas this year? I think it's going to be rocky, but not or bumpy, but it's not going to be terrible. I mean, one of the examples I've given is that last week in the east of England, there was virtually no bottled water. That wasn't because we'd run out of bottled water, it was because distribution companies prioritised other goods because water is bulky and difficult to move. Um, and those sorts of choices will be the ones they'll make up to Christmas. Now, not having bottled water is a real first world problem, but it will be that the distribution centres, the, the managers of those centres, the people running the logistics will have to make tricky decisions over Christmas about what to prioritise. And so some products will be in short supply. Christmas turkeys was one of them that was suggested to me because of the problems of labour shortages uh, before we get even to the drivers? Yes, I think there is an issue in primary production, particularly around pigs and poultry. Uh, in pigs, there aren't enough workers to do the, in the abattoirs to do the slaughtering of pigs. And the consequence of that is that, rather unpleasantly, they're growing fatter and fatter and therefore past the point when they are at the optimum size for, for slaughter. And as a consequence, when they are slaughtered, their meat can't be used. The same is true in a different way of turkeys. There aren't enough people in the workforce to be deployed to uh, help in the catching and feeding of them. And so we, we really face a situation where we may not have enough turkeys of the right size available at Christmas. And, and in a way, that's ironic because it's the reversal of what we had last Christmas. Uh, you mentioned COVID as, as being situation, but Brexit has also been a complicating factor. And there's also worldwide supply chain yeah. issues um, from the, the, the shipping industry. We see these things. I mean, which of those three factors are the, the more important, do you think? Well, I'm not one of those who says that this is a, a, a real Brexit um, legacy. I think Brexit is the backdrop to this. Similarly, I think COVID has had a major effect. 
But the biggest change here are a series of structural changes and lifestyle changes, which I suspect were going on before the COVID outbreak and probably before the Brexit vote. We just didn't spot them. And both of those two really seismic events have accelerated these social changes. And we haven't been quick enough as an industry or as a supply chain to notice them until they're manifest. And now we've got to do some catching up. Just-in-time works great until it doesn't work. Yeah. And then there's no margin for error in the system because it's all been squeezed out over the years. Is that the situation that we're facing now? Yeah, just-in-time has, has really prevailed for 40 years. And it's been a brilliant system. It's meant that UK shoppers and diners have had the widest possible choice of product at all price points and in all geographies, pretty much. But as the system erodes, businesses have to make decisions on priorities. And those decisions will tend to be driven by market forces and by the ease of distribution. So those who are most geographically remote or economically remote are likely to be the ones first hit. Now, as I say, they won't run out of food, but the choices to which they've become absolutely used will begin to be eroded and they will notice that and are noticing it pretty quickly. Mm. It's going to take time to uh, adjust the supply chains, uh, as you say. And you also said you don't blame Brexit for all of this uh, situation, but it is a complicating factor. I mean, I think there's no getting away from that. Eastern, uh, Eastern European truck drivers in particular aren't coming back in. Uh, and that's a component of, of the problem that may or may not be addressable. Uh, to what extent is Brexit a problem? I mean, would you assign any kind of percentage to the problem that's been caused or exacerbated by Brexit? Well, I think Brexit probably accounts for about 20, 25% of the current difficulties. And obviously it's the backdrop. Um, and, and I do think that, that these are structural changes uh, that we all should have noticed. And I do think also that the government's going to have to make some kind of disposition about how it reacts to these. Uh, if it doesn't, the only thing that will get people back into the industry at the level we need will be significant wage increases. Now that will be admirable for those people, but it will mean food price rises. And we're already seeing food price inflation take off for the first time in 40 years. I think by the end of the year, we could see it close to double digits. Now that doesn't mean that the UK inflation rate will go that high because there are other mitigating factors. But people are already noticing rising prices on the shelves alongside the gaps that uh, have begun to emerge. Mm. You said it's, it's the government were elected on a mandate to do certain things, particularly around the immigration piece. But, you know, J.M. Keynes is favor, famous saying about when facts change, I change my mind. They've already breached manifesto promises on pensions and on taxes. They can do it. It's not beyond the, the, the bounds of possibility to make some changes and tweaks. But do you think they might? Well, I think, I think the government is, is nothing if not hugely um, sensitive to public opinion. So if they think public opinion is moving in favour of changes to the immigration policy to facilitate better food supply, or indeed actually better supply in general, because this is something that affects the whole of the UK economy and indeed goes a bit wider. I mean, we see the same sorts of pressures in the US and in Northern Europe. I think the government could move on this. I think Priti Patel is a highly practical politician and the possibility of an emergency or a COVID recovery visa is, is one that is real. Uh, we know that a number of the most pro-Brexit backbenchers uh, are supporting it. So we may yet see some movement. I think we've got to make our case rationally and without the, the rhetoric of the last few years and show that it has a benefit to their constituents and to UK shoppers and diners, and, and maybe we will get across the line. Your biggest export market for your members' firms um, from your association is Ireland. Yes. And your recent economic report showed a very big fall in exports to Ireland. Just how problematic is the border control and the Brexit issues that have arisen uh, for your members? Well, I think that the situation in Northern Ireland and the food supply to Northern Ireland and to the Republic, actually, is entirely the result of Brexit. I mean, those disruptions are the result of the trade and cooperation agreement um, and the fact that it doesn't really do the job it was intended to. And I'm not saying anything that Lord Frost hasn't said. Um, I do think that we need to see changes in the way it works. I'm glad uh, of some of the changes that have been made and the way that now it does look as though 
the UK government and the European Union are working together to try and come up with practical solutions. Um, I think it's really important that we do that. Uh, we do not want food to become a flashpoint in the otherwise already very, very complicated politics of Northern Ireland. You've also got a personal uh, reference point in relation to Northern Ireland and not wishing to see things deteriorate there politically. Yes, that's right. I mean, my father was uh, blown up uh, or caught up in an IRA bomb in the 1970s. And I remember quite distinctly the very great concern we had for several hours because we didn't know what had happened to him. Fortunately, he was fine and he was just a bit, a bit dishevelled as a consequence. But I, I know as someone who lived through the 1970s, becoming an adult in the 1970s, how serious that situation was. And nobody of my generation wants to go back to that. And we certainly, certainly don't want food and drink and its supply to become one of the causes. It would be, it would be astonishingly unpleasant and foolish and most regrettable if that happened. And we are in the FDF are going to do everything we can to make sure it doesn't. All right, Sean, that was Ian Wright, the Chief Executive of the Food and Drink Federation. Good to catch up with him, seeing as we had touched on him last week and only got a short snippet of him, so there is a bit more depth on that. Tony, looking ahead to the coming days and weeks, what's coming up on your radar in the, in the Brexit realm? The Brexit sphere, yeah. Well, uh, next week there's going to be a General Affairs Council, meaning European Affairs Ministers from all over Europe will be in Brussels, and they will have... EU-UK relations uh, on the agenda. So that'll be a chance for, you know, a political discussion on how to respond to the latest kind of rhetoric from David Frost and the fact that, uh, you know, the UK has announced its own unilateral standstill period, effectively putting grace periods on a an open-ended footing um, you know, we, we talked last week about the EU taking a more cautious and trying to have a, a, a less boisterous interaction with the, the UK, less political, fewer punch-ups. Um, so uh, th there will be a, a political discussion by ministers on how that is going. Um, and Maros, Maros Shevchevich, the EU's chief interlocutor on the protocol, will probably outline as far as he can what proposals he's going to bring forward um, at the end of September or it looks more likely now that these proposals will come out after the political conference season in London uh, and elsewhere in the UK uh, just to keep the keep sure that the political temperature in the UK is manageable when these proposals are published um, but we'll probably get a bit of a, a a heads up on what those proposals are like. I mean, we've talked about medicines. So that's going to be one of the big issues there. But also we're going to be talking about customs and agri-food and also what way Northern Ireland institutions might um, have more of a, a say or a role in how the protocol is implemented. Later in the week, I'll be actually travelling to Cologne for the German elections. I'll be reporting from Cologne on Angela Merkel's political career. I'll be attending an SPD rally there. The centre-left are in with a shout of winning an election for the first time in years. And then I'll be travelling on to Berlin on Saturday for... Um, the actual election itself uh, on Sunday and reaction and results on Sunday, Monday. So hopefully I'll be joining the podcast from uh, Cologne on Friday with a little bit of a German flavour to all sorts of Brexity stuff. Right, and by Sunday you'll be holding your lighter aloft to the strains of the Scorpions' winds of change, potentially. Uh, Sean, what's coming up on your your radar in the week ahead? Well, as Tony mentioned, it's uh, heading into political conference season here, so we've got only a few days of uh, Parliament uh, next week uh, and then from uh, Saturday week on uh, we're into the conferences starting with the Labour Party down in Brighton they don't actually have conferences in London Tony the whole idea of the conference is to get the hell out of this town for That's a few days of drinking exactly right, pints yeah. in pint-sized glasses and uh, talking about serious politics um, as you know any good pint drinking person would do so they're off to Brighton. Uh, starting on the uh, 3rd of October, it's the Conservative Party conference, and they're up in Manchester. So there isn't going to be a, there's going to be a parliamentary break for a couple of weeks. And the expectation is, uh, as you say, there ain't going to be nothing serious 
really pinging about on the Brexit front until these conferences are out of the way. When the pint drinking is done, the hangovers, political of course, are sorted out and uh, cleared away and the posturing that goes on at these things uh, dies down a little bit. So uh, wait till after the 6th of October before we start to see any really substantial things, I guess, on the Brexit front. In the meantime, there's also a United Nations General Assembly taking place in New York, uh, British Prime Minister Johnson on his way over to that. I'm sure the Taoiseach will be going as well. Various other European leaders, indeed world leaders, all heading for the same town. So lots of high-level sidebar discussions uh, over there. You never know. Somebody might mention the B word or the T word, trade, or the S word, submarines. Or you never know. They might all just head to a New York bar and have a few pints and sort out the world's problems. We live in hope. Indeed. You're, you're doing the heavy lifting next week anyway, Tony. Uh, from me, Colm Mungo and Ortiz, Deb foreign editor in Kildare from me Sean Whelan RTE's London correspondent in Westminster and from me Tony Connolly RTE's Europe editor in Brussels thanks for listening <laughs>